Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's Word. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. Everybody doing good today? We good? This feels like an energetic crowd. I cannot say that about 930 today, but this feels like an energetic crowd. We're glad you're here And man, you just heard a lot about what's coming up this week, but let me just echo that one more time that we really want you to be here for this this week coming up, all the things that we have planned. We have planned for really just one purpose, just to reflect on the cross and to remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we want you here. We've got three options for you for Easter, Wednesday at 7, Sunday at 9.30 and 11. And then Good Friday, Friday night, is going to be a different experience Uh, It will be in here in this room around round tables for a a much more experiential uh, worship experience, some short teachings and and some worship and reflection moments. Uh, That's just going to be a really powerful time. We're expecting a full room based on the tickets that have already been reserved for both of those services. So we'd love to have you be with us Wednesday night for Easter or Sunday morning and then again on Friday night. Uh, Because we just think this week's going to be an incredible experience for all of us, just to remember and again to reflect on all that Easter means to us as Christ followers or maybe just as those that are searching uh, in a faith walk. So I'm, I'm excited about this week. But here's what we all know. We recognize, even if we don't think about it a lot, just intuitively we know that you don't just show up at the cross on Friday. And you don't just show up at the empty tomb on Sunday. There were some things that had to take place to get us to Friday, and to get us to Easter Sunday. And so today really starts what many refer to as Holy Week, uh, this idea that today is Palm Sunday, and and we're really starting with Jesus, this journey towards the cross of Friday and the empty tomb of Sunday. And, And so as we think about that, I thought it would be really appropriate for us to just take some time to learn a little bit about what Palm Sunday is and why it's important uh, for, for, again, for all of us in the room. And so maybe you've, you're very familiar with this. Maybe all week long you just kind of take part in a lot of different things, a lot of different events, or maybe you have a personal reflection schedule that you kind of keep on this holy week just to remember all the things that were taking place according to Scripture. But we want to really start today looking at what was Jesus doing today as he was headed towards what we will remember and celebrate next weekend. Uh, and so what we want to do is we want to go to the passage of what was taking place on Palm Sunday in the Gospel of Luke. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to flip with me to Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible but you've got an app, feel free to use that. Uh, the, the scriptures today will be uh, displayed on the screens. But Luke records one of the, the places that we see some of the events as Jesus is coming in, what's described as the triumphal entry as he's coming into Jerusalem and setting these events uh, in motion. And so this is what we read in Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. 
And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the great whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, Jesus' instructions to his disciples were important as I read this because he said to them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and find, just go into the town, go into the village, and in there you're going to find a colt that is tied up. Nobody's ever sat on this colt. And I want you to find it, and I want you to untie it and bring it back to me. But if, hypothetically, an owner of that colt gets mad that you're stealing their colt, here's what you say to them. The Lord has need of it. And that'll be all you need to say, and then bring the cult to me, and that's how this process will start. And wouldn't you know it, when they showed up in the village and started untying the cult, the owner said, what are you doing stealing my cult? What, 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 hey, hey, stop, what are you doing? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And he was just like, okay, well then steal my cult, that's fine, go ahead, you can just have it. I don't understand why that took place like that, but here's what it reminds me of, that God preordained the events of this week for the purposes that he had in mind for Jesus and for me and you. Jesus had enough prophetic insight about what was going to take place even as he sent the disciples to get the cult he would ride in on that he told them exactly what to say when they faced opposition. And it's easy for me to think about that when I think about the cross, when I think about the cross and I think, oh, okay, well, you know, he had to go to the cross because my sins had to be forgiven and the tomb had to be emptied because I needed to know that no, no thing was greater than the power of death and he overcame that. And so I see that and I see God's plan. But even the idea that God had a plan that included instructions to the owner of the cult tells me that God is writing a grander story than you and I sometimes give him credit for. We often think about God's grander story when we can easily put the pieces together. We, we, we find ourselves in a new place. We find ourselves in a new moment. It's like, oh, I can see what God is doing here. This is incredible. God's forethought and his plan. I see it all right here. Man, this is incredible. But how many times do we walk through our days and things are happening and we're going, man, what in the world is God doing? I have no idea what God is doing. In those moments, we don't need to forget that God has a plan God has purpose, so much so that he told the disciples what they were to say when the owner got upset. But even beyond that, I want you to see this journey that Jesus was taking on this day to get him into Jerusalem. You know, J Jesus, it said, was, was in Bethany, and he was heading towards Bethpage, and then he would eventually find his way. I asked these guys to throw up a map for us to see this. This green line here is the journey that Jesus was taking on Palm Sunday, and this is Jerusalem here. So this was eventually where he would end up, and all of the events of this week are going to take place inside this big brown line. Everything that you see here will take place in or around that. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus starts out way over here in Bethany, and they find the colt in the village, and they come and they put their cloaks on top of that colt, and they sit Jesus down on top of it, and then they bring him down this green line, and we see the Mount of Olives right here, and then at the base of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane, which he's going to end up back at next weekend, because he's going to go and have a moment of prayer with the disciples, and they're going to fall asleep, and he's going to say to them, can't you tarry with me just a little bit longer, as he cries out to his father, please let this cup of suffering pass from me. 
Don't allow me to have to go through everything that I'm about to experience where they're going to beat me, they're going to put a crown of thorns on me, they're going to rip skin from my back, they're going to put me on a cross and nail through my hands and my feet. If there's any way for the purpose and the plan that you have, God, to take place without me having to experience the pain, please let that happen. He prays that right here. And so on this Palm Sunday, he's heading by a place that he would eventually come back to. And then he makes his way into the city by way of the temple. And we see later in some of these passages of the Gospels that he would teach in the temple early in the week. And then we see some days where there's not a ton recorded about what he would do. And then later he's going to make his way down to the south part of Jerusalem where he would go with his disciples to take part in that last supper. And then he's going to make his way back and he's going to pray and he's going to come back and eventually he would be arrested and he's going to be led before Pilate and all of the government things. Those are going to take place down here and then eventually he's going to be crucified on a cross up here at the top part and then he's going to be put in a a borrowed tomb over here. All of this is taking place but Palm Sunday is important because we need to see how he even got to where he ended up. He passes by so many places of importance in the story of Jesus And in the story of the Holy Week, that it again reminds me that God was up to something. God was up to something. And so often I forget that. But I don't want us to miss what we just read out of Luke 19. I want you to look back at verse 37. It says this, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. The whole multitude of his disciples. This was more than the 12. This was more than the guys that he called out of the fishing boats from. This is the whole multitude. Jesus never had a problem drawing a big crowd. Anytime he was doing miracles, it seemed like that they were spilling out of the house. Anytime he was doing something miraculous, there were just people everywhere. Who were those people? Many of them were the whole multitude of his disciples. Later when Jesus dies, he's resurrected, and Judas, it becomes apparent that Judas is the one that's betrayed him. In Acts chapter 1, they had to replace Judas so that they would have a new 12th disciple. And one of the criteria for them to choose that extra disciple was they chose from among all the people who had been with Jesus the entire time. But we never heard their name until Acts chapter 1. There were two guys that were nominated to become the 12th disciple, and it wasn't because they were nice guys. It wasn't because they were just like these guys that, you know, happened to be in the right place at the right time. No, no, no. These were guys that followed Jesus' ministry the entire time. From the time he was baptized until his death, they were hanging around with the 12, hanging around for the miracles, hanging around for the teaching. They were there the whole time. They were the multitudes. Those people that when Jesus would go and have dinner in a house, there were just people spilling out of the house. There were multitudes. We often only hear about the 12. But in moments like this, we're reminded that there was a lot of people that were hanging out with Jesus. Well, here's the crazy thing. Jesus was always around crowds except when he didn't want to be. Because what would happen so often is that Jesus would just kind of see the crowd, see the crowd, see the crowd. And we would see, we're going to read about one in just a minute, we would see that he removed himself from the crowd. He got away. He got into a boat. He went across to the other side. And the people would run around the edge of the lake and meet him on the other side. And it's almost like if Jesus gets to the other side, he'd be like, can I just have a minute? And all the introverts in the room said, thank you. I don't know if Jesus was introverted, but I mean, there's got to be some times where he just kind of pushes back and is like, can I just get a breather, please? I'm doing tons of stuff for y'all. I'm doing everything I can. Can I just get like a minute of peace and quiet? Because it seemed like everywhere Jesus went, 
the multitudes showed up. It's no different on Palm Sunday. The whole multitude of his disciples. There were a lot of people, and you and I find ourselves sometimes in crowds of people, and in moments like today, a lot of those crowds of people are worshiping God, lifting up praise to God like we see on Palm Sunday. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when the crowds are crying out like that, even if you don't know the words to the song, you kind of get involved. You're like, I can sing that. The words are up on the screen. They're singing it up on stage. I'll just sing along with the crowds because the whole multitude was declaring that he was good because of what he had done. Because look, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Why were they praising God? For the mighty works that they had seen. For the things that they had watched him do. Far too often, the praise of the crowds are about the works that Jesus is doing and not about who Jesus is. I mean, this has been a challenge to me. It's been a confrontation to my worship and to my praise and to the way that I interact with God because I I try to think about the language, the vocabulary of my worship, the vocabulary of my prayers, and so often I am doing what the crowds did here, praising God for the works that he has done for me or asking God to do new works for me. And it asks this question of me and of you today, how much of my worship is focused on what God can do for me instead of who God is to me? Now, when I... When I ask that question, some of us are probably like, wait, 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 is it wrong for me to praise God for what he's done? Am I not supposed to thank God for the good works that he's done? Absolutely not. That's not wrong at all. Because even when the Pharisees showed up and said to Jesus, why don't you rebuke all these people? They're just, they're just anointing you and Hosanna, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're praising you for all the mighty works. Would you just make them shut up, please? And Jesus is like, no. No, because if they're quiet, the stones are going to cry out. Like, I will be praised. They're just doing their job. They're doing what they were created to do to worship me. I'm not going to tell them to stop. He defended. There's nothing wrong with praising God for what he can do. My question is, how much of our worship is about that? And how much of it is about who he is instead of just what he does? If I walked around all day... And I turned my recorder on on my phone and I kept it in my shirt pocket. And I just listened to my vocabulary of prayer. And I listened to my vocabulary of worship and praise. What would it tell me about my percentages of praise for his works, praise for who he is? Prayers for what I need him to do, prayers of adoration for who he is. That's the challenge for me. How much am I focused on what he can do and not on who he is? When I think about me... As a kid or as a teenager, I think about middle school me, and thank God y'all didn't know middle school me or even high school me. When I think about those prayers, here's some prayers that I would pray. I'd walk into science class, and I would say, oh, Lord, the teacher has sprung a test on us with one week's notice, but somehow I missed that notice. And God, right now, I'm calling on the divine 
heaven to meet earth in the form of my number two pencil. God, right now, I am believing for a miracle. I'm asking that when I bubble in letter C on the Scantron, if that's not right, that you would move it to letter B. God, right now, would you do a miracle right now? I'm believing God. And when I would pray prayers like that, now that I have a little more context, I don't know if becoming a parent made me this way, but I just imagine God sitting on his throne hearing that prayer, going, wait a minute, you didn't study, you weren't really paying attention when they taught this in class, and you want me to bail you out. Well, here's the problem. I don't know that I learned too much because I still pray a lot of prayers like that. I don't pray it about science class anymore. Thank God I made it through science, miraculously. But now I pray prayers like, God, I haven't done my part, but I'm asking you to do your part. God, a lot of this depends on me on earth here, but I'm asking you to do it because I'm too lazy to do what I'm supposed to do. Or I'm just not disciplined enough to say no to some things I should say no to. So now there's some consequences in front of me. God, would you take the consequences away from my bad behavior because of a lack of self-discipline? And I imagine God going, are we back in seventh grade, Jeremy? Is this the Scantron form all over again? I don't understand how we got back to this place. I'm asking God to do something instead of really focusing on who God is because it really confronts in me the challenge about prayer and about faith. Because if you're anything like me, I have prayed some prayers that God did not answer the way that I thought he should. Maybe there were three of us in the room. Nobody was really with me on that. But there were a couple of us in the room that we've prayed and asked God to do some stuff, and God didn't do it like we thought. Like, I have given God a great plan. God, here's how it works. I know you're busy. I know how this thing should work out. I know when it should be done, how it should be done, how much it's going to cost. God, if you'll just do it the way I'm telling you it should be done, everybody's going to be good. And that's not always the way God works. That's not always the way that God shows up in the circumstances of my life. And so I am confronted to really search my heart and think about some things. How do I interact with God when I don't get my way? When we pray to God and ask him to heal us or someone that we love, and he doesn't seem to do that, can I still praise him? If my praise is based completely on what he does for me, probably not. When I'm praying to God and asking him for a financial turnaround, and it just doesn't turn around, can I still worship God? Can you? When I pray to God and ask him to do something, and he doesn't seem like he's within a million miles of where I'm at, do I still have enough faith to praise God for who he is, even when he's not doing what I want him to do? They praised him for the mighty works that he had done. When your worship is based on a relationship and not on his workmanship, you can praise him no matter what. When your worship is based on a relationship and not his workmanship, you can praise him no matter what. But if my praise is completely dependent on him working for me, then it's not really praise, is it? It's not really worship to a God who is sovereign, who has a better understanding of the plans for my life than I do. It's a pattern that we see repeated in humanity over and over and over again. One of the greatest places that we see it is in the feeding of the 5,000. Pastor Trevor spoke this past Wednesday night to the students 
middle school and high school students in student life about the feeding of the 5,000. It was a great, great message. We talked about it ahead of the Wednesday night and just a great challenging teaching about that, that miracle. And so we see in this passage that Jesus, again, has thousands of people, 5,000 men, perhaps other thousands of women and children included in this. And he's teaching, and they're all just around him. And there comes this moment when he's been teaching so long. He was the only preacher that ever went long, ever, in the history of the world. No preacher has ever gone long except for Jesus. But he gets long-winded, and everybody gets a little hungry. And so the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, you got to feed these people. And Jesus gave the varsity its tagline when he said, well, what do you have? It's in the Bible, I promise. The varsity stole it right out of the Gospels. Jesus said, you feed them. What do you have? And so they go walking around through the crowd, and they find this one little boy was the only one with the foresight to bring lunch. And he's got two and a half fish sandwiches, and nobody else has any food. And so he says, Jesus says, okay, well, just bring me what you found. And he blesses it. He breaks it. Spreads it out. There's enough to feed all the thousands of people that were there, including baskets filled with leftovers. Leftovers are of God. Can I get an amen right there? We see this miracle take place here. And I love what's happening in the interaction here because it is so me. So often I read these stories in scripture and I'm like, man, these people are crazy. They missed the point. And yet I know if I was in the moment, I'd react the same way. Look at this in, in John chapter 6, verse 14. This will be up on the screen. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, the feeding of the 5,000, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. These people get their bellies filled, and they are like, this is the guy. I mean, this is the guy. That tasted so good. It didn't even taste like fish sandwiches. I don't even like fish sandwiches. That was so good. Like, this is the guy. Let's do this. Let's get the militia together. Let's overthrow the government. Let's make Jesus the king. And Jesus, I don't know if he was introverted, but a little bit of introverted Jesus right here says, oh, man, I hear him whispering. They're going to try to make me king. I'm going to the mountain. Don't tell anybody. And he starts to walk away. Look at this. In verse 26, the crowd's caught up with him. He goes. He walks across the water as if that's no big deal, walks across the water to the other side. They run around the edge of the lake, and they meet him on the other side. And this is what it says in verse 26. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Verse 34. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus said to him, he said, listen, you're only here because of what I did for you. You're only here because I filled your bellies. And they're like, you're right. Keep giving us bread. And Jesus is like, no, listen, you don't understand. It's not about bread for your bellies. It's about bread for your soul. And I'm that. It's not about me creating bread for you and doing something for you. It's who I can be to you. The bread of life. The bread of life where you will never go hungry or thirsty again because that's who I am. It's not what I can do. When it's about what I can do, eventually you get hungry again. But if it's about who I am, that never stops. It's not about your bellies. It's about your soul. I'm the bread of life. Look at this in verse 41. The first church people ever to grumble and complain. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Now, I want you to get a picture here of what these people are saying. They're still full from him turning two and a half fish sandwiches into enough to feed thousands with leftovers. But when they say, keep giving us bread, and he's like, no, I'm more than that. I'm the bread of life who came from heaven for eternity. They're like, wait a minute. I know your mom and daddy. Isn't Mary and Joseph your mama and daddy? I know your grandparents. Here's what they were doing. Whenever Jesus stops doing for you what you want him to do, the temptation is to begin to discredit who he is. I can't tell you how many people I've met with in ministry over the years, both in student ministry when I was ministering to middle school and high school students for about 10 years, and now with adults and families and, I mean, even people that have been walking with the Lord a long time. When we get into trouble, when, when we, we run out of like what we think is God's plan because it's not as good as it was yesterday and today's a little bit struggle and today's a little bit tougher and we're walking through a little bit of a dark time, we tend in that moment to look at God and go, you aren't who you said you were. When life was good, you were exactly who I thought you were. But now that life's a little bit tough, you're just marrying Joseph's little boy. You came from heaven. You didn't come from heaven. I know your story. You were born in the stable. You're a nobody. When life gets to be messy, we turn on Jesus. That's what these people were doing. They were looking at him and going, no, no, no. If you're not going to feed me, if you're not going to bless me, if you're not going to do the things that I want you to do, I'm out. Look at this, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Not only will you discredit Jesus when you don't get your way. If you're anything like me, sometimes there's a temptation to walk away. I've met so many people and they just, they just walk away. They just back off. They go, no, he's, he's not who I thought he was. He's not doing all the nice things for me anymore. He's not doing what I thought he would do. I'm out. And those multitudes that were praising him on Palm Sunday, those multitudes that were getting their bellies filled when the feeding of the 5,000, in that moment, they were like, wait a minute, you're going to stop feeding us? They turned back and they walked away. And Jesus, in this really personal conversation with the 12 disciples, he looked at them and he said, are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave? Am I not who you thought I was? Just because things aren't maybe like they were a little while ago when I was kind of turning fish and loaves into you leaving too? And I love Simon Peter because Simon Peter usually said the wrong thing at the wrong time, which I can so identify with. And Simon Peter looked at Jesus and he said, where are we going to go? Where would we go if we didn't stay with you? You have the words of eternal life. And I love what he said in that last verse. It said, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Simon Peter wasn't talking about what Jesus could do for them. He was talking about who Jesus was to them. There's a difference. The people that were only in it for what they got out of it left. But the people that recognized that there was now a relationship with the Son of God, they said, where can we go that's better than right here? Where can we go? Who would we go to? Because you're it. You're Jesus. You're the Son of God. Until you get to the place where his presence is enough. When the presence stops, so will your praise. Until you and I can get to the place where his presence, just being with him is enough. When the good stuff stops, so does our praise. That's a challenge for me. I don't think this is a thing that you just kind of figure out and you get done in a day or a week or a month. After the first service, I had somebody that's been walking with the Lord a long time. They said, you know what? I'm still trying to figure this out. Because there's some days where I'm challenged to make sure that it's about being with him and not just seeking what he can do for me. This is, this is what it's about. Praising him for who he is and not just what he can do. So let's wrap this up. The multitudes journeyed with him in worship on that Palm Sunday, but look what they did just a few days later. Luke 23, verse 18. But they all cried out together. The multitudes cried out together. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept, they, the multitudes, kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they, the multitudes, were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices, the multitudes, prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they, the multitudes, asked for. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Here's the problem. Palm Sunday confronts in me. Do I only worship with the crowd or do I have a personal worship in my heart that comes out at all times? Here's what I mean. On Palm Sunday, if I'm just in it because the crowd's in it, my worship sounds a lot like this. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because that's what the crowds are screaming. And so I just join in and go, hey, the words are on the screen. Let's all sing along. Yeah, this is what we sing. This is what we do on Sunday mornings. Hey, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But on Tuesday, if that worship is not personal, the song being sung is different. And my praise sounds a lot like theirs. As they talk about things that are not of God at all. And on Thursday in math class, the things that are coming out of my mouth don't sound anything like my praise on Sunday. Because now I find myself in a moment when the crowds and the praise of the crowds that's coming up from the crowd says, crucify him, crucify him. And I'm in the crowd and I don't know what to say because I don't have personal worship. And so my mouth opens up and I start saying, crucify him, Cru crucify him. 
Give us Barabbas. Why do I want Barabbas? Oh, because everybody, okay, give us Barabbas. Give us the murderer. Kill Jesus. Give us the guilty guy. Why am I saying this? Because the crowds are saying this. And I don't have a personal worship. I don't have a personal prayer. I don't have anything inside of me that's about who he is. It's all about what he does. And so I'm swayed by the cheers of the crowd. And on Sunday, it sounds awesome. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if somebody were standing near me and they listened to me, they'd go, wow, you really love God, don't you? Yes, I do. I'm praising God for the mighty works that he's done for us. But if that same person is standing by me on Friday morning, as I yell, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. You know what they would know? That my praise is completely dependent on what he does for me and not on who he is to me. I want to get to that place where I sound a whole lot like Simon Peter, crazy old Simon Peter who usually got it wrong. And in moments where I'm tempted to yell, crucify him, I actually look at Jesus and go, where else would we go? What's better than being with you? You're the Holy One of God. You're the, you're, the, you're the Son of God. Where would I go that's better than being with you? My worship, my praise, my prayers must be out of a personal relationship with who He is and not just what He can do. But when he stops doing stuff for me, I don't have anything to praise him for. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. Maybe you would say today, Jeremy, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Well, you know, I'm, maybe I'm a decent person. Maybe I do pretty good things with my life, but I know that I am not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And today I want to fix that. I want to admit that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I want to identify with other people in this room who live out the truth of Romans chapter 3 that says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God because I fall short. I've messed up. And I want to ask him now to forgive my sins and lead my life from this day forward. Would you just lift your hand right where you're at? You can put it right back down. Thank you so much. And now if you would say to me, Jeremy, listen, for me, it's not a salvation issue, but I want my worship to reflect a personal relationship and not just the mighty works that he's done for me. I want it to be about who he is I want to know him more. I want to spend time with him more so that my worship declares he is something to be praised. He is someone worthy of worship and not just about what he does for me. I want that to be true for me. Would you lift your hand today? Thank you so much. So many hands. God, I love you today. I thank you today. 
for the opportunity to worship, to declare your goodness towards us. God, I pray right now for every hand that was lifted to accept you as the Lord and Savior of their life. Today, we gave them the opportunity to allow you to do something supernatural, to forgive sins, something I can't do, but only you can do. And so God, today, we thank you that you are the forgiver of sins, that you are the acceptor of all people. As we respond to you now, God, we celebrate along with heaven for every single person that lifted their hand and lifted their heart in need of you. And God, now I pray for every other uplifted hand that says, I want my worship to reflect a heart that beats for who you are and not just what you do. God, let us spend time with you, not out of obligation, but out of a desire to grow in relationship with you. And God, as we read your word and we spend time in prayer, would you make yourself known to us in greater measure? God, we thank you that you allow us to know you and to worship you for who you are and not just what you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.